Thanks for listening to the Roman Circus Podcast, a weekly dive into death-defying discussions of Catholic culture, tradition, and history. I'm Matt Baker, and with me, as always, we don't make them till you order them, Zach Mabry. Zach, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great today. I'm doing great. It's a wonderful day. You can tweet us at Roman Circus Pod. I'm at Hey, it's Matt Baker. Zach is at Zach Mabry, Z-A-C Mabry. Email us podcast at romancircusblog.com. You can find us on iTunes where you can rate and review us if you want. You can also find us on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever podcasts are. Now, Zach, we have one major announcement to make. We did it. Yes, we do. We created a Patreon. So if you want to support us at Patreon, you can find us patreon.com slash romancircuspod. Um, yeah, we... You know, we've been thinking about doing it for months, and everyone's been jumping on that bandwagon, so we decided to jump right aboard, too. Right. You know, it was important for us that we we knew, you know, what our goal was. And obviously, for the podcast, we want to be able to provide uh, great episodes, and um, it helps to offset the cost of uh, hosting and the equipment that we need to record the podcast. Um, and also, you know, in time, we want to be able to... We, we spend a lot of money on books, and there's... There's books and stuff that I would like to have to back up some of the episodes that we do. Right. Um, and the ability to to buy those, um, you know, it, it, it'd be nice to have dedicated funds to use. And so we're excited to have support. But um, whether you log in and, and throw us a few dollars or not, um, the best way you can support us, of course, is, is just with your prayers. Um, and, of course, downloading the episode because that helps our stats. But, uh, you know, Hail Marys help our heavenly stats. So... Um, that's the best way you could help us is to say a Hail Mary for us from time to time. All right, Zach, good response to the Sorab interview last week. That was really fun. People have been downloading it and enjoying it, and there's been a lot of praise for his book, too, I've been hearing. It was interesting because, I mean, you know, and the, the first question we asked him was kind of, okay, you know, you're a young guy, you know, a memoir, really. And I think he did a great job explaining, you know, the message behind the book and when you read the book you can kind of see that it's uh it's very focused on kind of his conversion and yeah i hope hope you guys are reading it and we'd love to hear your your feedback on it and you know if it's uh if it's helpful i'll, I'll even we'll pass it along to to sorab when we talk to him just remember to enter our promo code at checkout i don't know what that okay if we have a promo code funny thing about promo codes okay can we can i take a quick tangent yes of course so, um, you know, a big thing people do is try to become social media influencers, especially on Instagram, which is Instagram's not really my domain. Um, right. But I just found out that what some people do to try to become brand influencers is that they, they literally just make their own kind of promotions for products that they like. Yeah. And then they just take an existing discount code and are like, use my exclusive code spring 2019 to get 10% off your, you know, shoes with the idea that that will either get that brand to reach out to them or, you know, smaller brands to be like, Oh, well, will you push our product? And it, it basically is how they, they get started. Did you know that? Yeah. It's creating fake brands and fake sponsorships in order to get more. Like there was a, there's like a big article on this. I read somewhere that I forget where I read it. Shout out to them. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's I 
You Which we never it's... did that. I might remember when people were just begging us to start this podcast, and they were like, you guys have to do a podcast, Zach and Matt, please do a podcast. And so we were like, okay, okay, if we have to, we have to, we'll do it. Um, you know, thankfully, we're not we're not those people, you know? Yeah, no, we uh, everything we hawk, we use personally, and they give us our own promo code for, so... That's the that's the Roman Circus guarantee. All right, Zach, that's enough of that filthy brand hawking we were doing or whatever we were doing. Let's uh let's talk about the news for a second. What's going on in the news? Well, um a lot. So, one big thing that was kind of cool is that the uh Pope Francis became the first pope to visit the Arabian Peninsula. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I didn't know that was a thing that hadn't happened. I'm assuming it means, you know, a reigning pope cuz I'm I'm sure there's been somebody over the last 2000 years who has right. been to the Arabian Peninsula and eventually been pope. But, right, so, um, but someone who is currently pope. Yeah. And so the images are just neat because I mean, I don't know, you just sort of you know the there were other you know government officials there and you know people from you know different religions and so the the outfits it was just kind of cool the pictures because you didn't you didn't have you know a bunch of guys in you know hoodies and jeans hanging out it was like you know all this different ceremonial traditional attire. garb so yeah traditional garb yes <laughs> that was there and then um over stateside we had the state of the union address yeah thankfully you watched it so i didn't have to i did i watched it and i i live tweeted it a little bit but um it's Amazing the decision of when to clap and when to stand and clap and when not to clap when you're the opposition party. Right. Because you're like, okay, unemployment's down. That's probably good. I, But uh, do I clap? <laughs> yeah. And so I would uh, – I think if I was ever in, in government, which would, would be a disaster, I would prefer to be in the ruling party because the just the, the optics of being the opposition is, is just a bit beyond me. Sure, you have to have some real some real guts to sit there and stay in your seat if they're applauding something good. Yes, and the uh, delightfully awkward special guests were all there. A lot of them were legitimate heroes, of course, but it I'm it's sure. just always strange when you're like, now let's pause, and here is... I figured next year they'll do, like, uh, product placements. So, like, after the president's done talking about foreign policy, he'll be like... And, you know, with ZipRecruiter, I can find anyone I need to fill government posts. Well, it is President Trump, so they would get the uh, Burger King Man of the Year or, like, the McDonald's Woman of the the Speech, something like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's what they should do. It'd be like our, our um, yeah, doing sponsorship. Like, they could take you, like, our St. Jude representative or, or like, you can buy uh, the ConocoPhillips... A war veteran. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Special guest is blah blah blah. The um, you know NBC's Today Show a rare disease survivor for this year is Mrs. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. So the the State of the Union is interesting because you know technically it, it doesn't have to be a speech. It can just be like something submitted in writing, and that's what it had been at one point in history. Right up until like the early 1900s. Right. Right. And, you know, I'm a big fan of, or not a fan, I mean, I I just am a firm believer that a functioning government does require a certain amount of pageantry. 
Yeah. Um, a lot of people are like, no, it's just got to be efficiency or, you know, they just have to do their thing. But the, you know, the, the show that you put on the pageantry, you know, helps with the legitimacy. So in general, I'm, I'm for, you know, things like inaugurations and, you know, state functions like that. But the state of the union is one I could, I could part with. They could just go back yeah, to well, emailing well, Congress. Like we always talk about in our beloved Downton Abbey or the crown, how the, uh, you know, like they have to, like Mary has to, and Downton Abbey has to portray a certain thing because the people of the town look up to her or Queen Elizabeth always has to put on a good face because she has the entire country looking to her for guidance and for positive attitude, right? So on some level, right. no matter how small or large we want the government to be and what function we want them to do, we also want them to be an entity that we feel confident in and that portrays confidence so it makes sense right yeah a lot of people will want to dispense with that stuff and see that it's all kind of unnecessary the you know the ceremony the the transcendence if you will right um but it it realistically in a functioning human society it it has an important role and so i I think in time there'll be more of a understanding of that but um Anyway, not to get too off topic on that, but yeah, so the State of the Union happened. Uh, Stacey Abrams, the former governor candidate from Georgia, gave the rebuttal. Right. And, um, I mean, she was great. The The funniest thing, though, is that there was this group of people on, like, choir risers behind her mm-hmm. that were all just kind of standing there, and they had, like, their head tilted a little bit. Were they, and like, then every CGI so often they would people? Nod. Well, I think that they were really behind her. But then I was watching it, and I was like, I think these people might be on loop. Because, like, I mean, they were all just kind of standing there, nodding. I don't really understand why they were there. But, um, yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, that's uh, – I, like I said, I didn't watch it, but I read some tweets about it. But, you know, got to do what you got to yeah, do. Yeah, I, I watch not... these things so that our uh, our listeners don't have to. Right. At least it wasn't uh... – Marco Rubio trying to drink some water. Am I right, Zach? That's a topical joke still, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. No, actually, before the rebuttal, they said that Stacey Abrams was going to be sure to be well hydrated before the event so that she didn't have to drink water. Amazing. And, you know, it's I, I know. I don't even. But that reminds me of the, the debate between there was one of the Bernie Hillary debates. Hillary had to take a bathroom break and was like late coming back. And Trump just jumped all over it. But yeah. uh, these people are humans. So. Yeah, um, we are we are ruled by humans, Zach. What, yes. What? The one thing, the last tip I would give, one, is don't watch cable news. But if you do, <laughs> um, during the Trump era, it's more fun to watch any kind of Trump thing on MSNBC. I'm sure. telling you, it's so much more enjoyable because there's just, it, it just plays out. Like, don't, don't turn on Fox and watch them watch a Trump thing. Like if you're going to watch Trump, watch Trump on MSNBC, you, you won't be sorry. It's just incredibly entertaining. That's the, uh, that's the Roman circus podcast guarantee. Yes. And remember when you're watching, they're not, they don't talk about this on the other. Yeah. Watching NBC enter our promo code at checkout. So they know we sent you. Yes. Sorry. They don't talk about this on the other podcast. Yeah. No, they, they talk about important things. Uh, by the way, if you quick plug to one of our friends' podcasts, uh, the Raising Helmix podcast, they they did an, their last episode was about the troubles of YouTube and children, and it was very interesting. I don't know if you've listened to it yet, but just talking about how YouTube kind of 
sets up to try and get these clicks on these kids and they don't really care what they show the kids they just want to kind of addict them to the videos so they keep getting the plays over and over and over again oh yeah there's a i read an article about it last week i wonder if they're talking about the same thing but it's it's creepy i mean you watch some of these children's youtube videos and it's i mean there's just something off about a lot of it some i mean some of it's fine but um, some I, I guess are, are good people, but, uh, the, <laughs> the videos. Yeah. And it, the weird thing too, is that they're advertised by how long they are. Like, they'll be right. like, this is an hour of stupid cartoons. Right. And the kids just get sat in front of it. Um, no, I totally, I haven't listened to it yet, but, um, knowing them, I'm excited to, to take a listen. And yet, I mean, just browse kids, YouTube sometime. It's creepy. Yep. All right, is that all that is in the news this week? What do we got? Anything else? Yeah, nothing else uh, to be worried about, I'd say. Good. I don't like being worried at all. Uh, Okay, so one of the things we get asked about a lot in the emails and on the Twitter is about the Latin Mass. So we're very open when we talk about how we go to the Latin Mass every weekend uh, we, I think we try and be America's Internet's foremost nice guy, traditional Latin mass lovers. And uh, so what people do is they'll, they'll email us, those, usually with, like, I'm going to the Latin mass for the first time this weekend. I've never been. Do you have any tips for me? Or they'll ask about certain parts of the mass. So what we figure we would do is basically two podcasts, uh, regarding those questions and some of the things you would find in the mass. Um, that way, you know, we'll, we'll happily answer any question you send to us about it, but also, so you just kind of have a primer, and hopefully it helps if you're thinking about going to the Latin mass at some point soon. Definitely. So, I mean, I was thinking we could start with just defining some terms because there's a lot of times there's confusion about what's going on. So... When we're talking about the Latin Mass, um, we're talking about the um, the other terms you'll hear are you know Latin Mass, the Old Mass, the TLM, the Tridentine Mass, the Extraordinary Form, yada yada. All of those are referring to um, the Mass rubrics that were in place uh, in 1962, right? Um, which are currently approved for use as what's called the extraordinary form. So they're all kind of synonyms. Um, the term extraordinary form comes from the motu proprio sumorum pontificum, which authorized wider usage of the Latin mass. Right. Via Pope um, Benedict the 16th in 2007. That's a weird way to say the date 2007. Yes. Um, and so, you know, those are all referring to basically what we're talking about, you know, the old mass here. And a lot of times people ask, well, why 1962? Mm-hmm. You know, is there something magic about that? And, you know, the answer there is no. The The catch is, is that, you know, the big changes of the liturgical movement kicked in with, you know, after 62. Like, as of 62, you had, for the most part, the Mass, you know, how it had existed, you know, for centuries and centuries before. Going back to, you know, St. Gregory the Great, and then parts of it, you know, going back to St. Peter himself. Um, right. The, in 1969, the missile that came out under Paul VI was, you know, completely 
different in it you know it's the mass as we understand it now which would be the ordinary form roman rite novus ordo you know whatever you want the new mass etc yeah um there was you know just a quick history lesson there was a missile in 65 which was basically the latin mass in england in the vernacular um but there were also several missiles throughout the early 20th century too the the main reason that it's on 62 is because it's you know it's the last one before the big change so if we're saying that there's two forms of the roman right we're saying you know basically the current uh missile that we have represents one of them and then 62 is the one for the other um it's not you know it's not anything you know particular about 62 and i think a lot of you know people who love liturgy even have some qualms about 62 because some of the reforms had already started um, with the argument being, you know, shouldn't we have a version of the mass not impacted by 20th century reforms and then a version of the mass that's, that reflects 20th century reforms? Right. Um, but, you know, for the sake of unity, we just stick with 62 because it was the last one. Another term you could call it is the Missile of St. John the Twenty-Third, but people don't say that very often. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't <laughs> refer to that. I haven't really heard too many people refer to that actively like that. I know. He doesn't um, get credit, okay? <laughs> you saying that is a good thing or a bad thing? I, I like him. I mean, he, he, it's funny because he gets associated with, you know, progressive Catholicism because you know he was called Good Pope John by like the communists or whatever. But right. uh, no, I mean, he, he had all the had all the makings of a saint, and you can see it. There's great pictures. Even smoked cigarettes. Yeah, that's how, that's the making of the saints. He is a saint, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I was confused yep, temporarily about no that. Worries. But yeah, he is. Okay. And then so, as far as, you know, going to the mass, um, you know, we're talking about the 1962 missile. You can bring a missile if you want or if you want to go out and buy one, but you don't necessarily have to. Do you have a missile map? Uh, yes, I do. I You purchased one for me. Oh, that was my, yeah, that was, I guess, I actually forgot that I did that. Yeah. Um, so I have the, I have the little red book and I have the, the big black missile. Cool. Yeah. Um, so by the red book, basically, if you don't have a missile and you're wanting to follow along um, at the Latin mass, there's nine times out of 10, the parish will have these red paperback little missilettes that sort of have the Latin and English. And some of them will have Latin and Spanish in the United States, but if, if you don't speak English or Spanish, um, you're not listening to me right now, so I have no <laughs> advice for you. Right. Um, but those are handy, so you don't have to bring anything if you're wanting to follow along. Um, but, you know, eventually, after you've been going for a while, you may want to get a missile. And we talked in previous episodes about, like, different versions of the the traditional missile that you might want to buy. Yes. Okay, so uh, those are the different names. So if someone someone it it, yeah it does vary that is an important point to talk about the different names of the mass because if you jump on twitter say and you get into a discussion people will be throwing around all those different names and it does just kind of mean the same mass but that's one of the that's one of the good confusions to get out of the way right off the bat oh for sure um now okay so we'll, we'll break it up into two and one of them will one of them will kind of go over the missile, but I think we're going to do that second, correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay, so one of the—it's the, kind of a basic question, 
but it's an obvious question is just kind of like what what can I expect when I walk in what am I what am I walking into and like I said it sounds very basic but it's a very honest and important question and so just to clarify off the bat if you delve into the world of the internet you will come across a bunch of people some of those people are lovely people some of those people are mean people and there is a perception that all the mean people for the most part come from the traditional latin mass side okay and it it is it is a bummer and it makes people kind of question if they would even be welcomed into that setting now i i have not been to many latin mass parishes in my life but off the bat i want to just say that every parish i've been to has had an usher that has greeted people and helped them find where to sit right so if you 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 think it might be some cold heartless place but really it it just approaches the it, pro, it approaches the welcoming into mass more or less the same as your non-Latin mass parish that you grew up in. Would you say that's correct, Zach? Sure. Yeah, I think that the what people will encounter a lot of times is when they step into the the church itself, they'll find people very engaged in prayer. Um, there's there's really never you know conversations in right inside the chapel and even i mean even parish functions the 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 church itself is never really used except for worship so if there was a big parish meeting even though they have you know seating and space and everything available in the chapel you would just never see that take place uh, in the church space at a a latin mass parish the you know the idea of using it as like a, a concert hall or a um assembly room just doesn't that you know that was never really done in the past, um, and a lot of times you'll walk in and people will be praying, so they won't necessarily stop and you know get your entire life story, or you know a lot of times they won't even look up from what they're doing, um, but they're also kind of respecting you know your right to pray. Sure. And for certain people, like I would say, my dad, I could probably get him to go to you know my parents are still Protestant, but I could probably get him into Latin Mass by telling him nobody will talk to you. Um, <laughs> yeah. When you when you go in this room, right. they will literally be focused on prayer, and you can you can pretty much, as long as you're silent and you're not you know drawing attention to yourself, you can pretty much slip in and out unnoticed uh, if you choose. So for for some people, that is a selling point, not a detraction. But I, I think for other people, they I guess they're just kind of used to the more um, the etiquette being that you you know you stop what you're doing, you stand up, you meet the person, you. You, know, you you catch up with them and right. you have conversations in the in the before mass and after mass, whereas it just stays silent. Like there's just never, um, you know, casual conversation happening in in that room. Yeah. But so, well, on top of that, um, you did say that there is space and they don't have meetings in there. There, I, you you are correct in saying that there is space, but by and large, these parishes are very small buildings, smaller than what we're used to. They like the the one I went to in Los Angeles is it's it's a shoebox. I mean there's space for everyone to sit, but um you know they had, the priests had to fundraise and they had to find donors and they had to basically raise all the money themselves to build to buy this church. 
in modern day where you go in Dallas is substantially bigger than the St. Vitus in Los Angeles, but it still is not quite as big as some of the parishes you would go to. So the reason I say that is uh, if you're walking into a smaller Latin mass parish, they might just not have a ton of people who will usher, who will be at the doors, right? It's not making an excuse for anybody being mean or cold. It's just saying that it's it's kind of a different circumstance you're walking into because these are not these are not places with thousands of registered families. Right. Um, but I will say that, so I've been to Latin Mass in, I think, eight different states mm-hmm. and uh, two continents. And I will say that in every circumstance, there was a sort of parish hall space where people gathered after Mass. And those were always very lively places. There was like a 100% chance that somebody was going to offer you food and talk to you and, and you know, get your life story and, and tell you theirs. Sure. So there, there is a really strong social component. It's just going to happen outside of the, the chapel itself, which will be reserved for prayer. But it's also nice that I know any time of day that I want to go into a, like a trad parish that um, there's not going to be anything, you know, there's only going to be worship happening in the, in the church church and I can go in and pray. Absolutely. And so, you know, it, again, it, it is sort of a different it's just a culturally different from how a lot of parishes operate now, but you know, don't let that worry you. And the nice thing too is um, this goes right into it. A lot of these people that are praying and sort of focused on the mass or devotion that they're doing, uh, they're not necessarily noticing you. So I, I get a lot of questions about, you know, what should people wear right. to the traditional mass? Okay. Good, and, good segue. And I, yeah. And I, I mean, I wouldn't even bring it up except that I get a lot of questions about it because I, I don't think that it's, you know, should be a major concern, but then it's just natural to not want to, you know, look foolish when you go somewhere. Well, yeah, here, okay. So, so before you, one one thing to say about the concern about the wearing is anyone who asks the question, I, I can I think we can assume they are already aware enough to not dress disrespectfully. Does that make sense? So like if you're yeah. if you're concerned, it already shows that you're you probably don't have to worry about how you're dressing. Because if you didn't ask the question you and you just showed up in whatever you were wearing uh, like straight off the beach, then you wouldn't you wouldn't care enough to ask. So right. so if you take, you know, take solace in the fact that if you are concerned, you are already ahead of the curve. Oh, of course. Yeah. And so our parish has just a, a dress code to provide guidelines right. to everyone. But I, it's interesting, the caveats for the dress code. So there's two two components I want to talk about first that I, I've seen are pretty common. The first one is um, if it's your first time visiting the parish, you you can you're just just come in. And then, you know, next time you'll know. But there's the they're not going to send you out if you show up and you're not in dress code, right. assuming that you're, you know, decent. Yes. Um, the second thing is that nobody except the priests are allowed to enforce the dress code. So, you know, th- there could be a circumstance where the priest does have to take someone aside and say, you know, it, it's important that that, you know, that you're here. And um, and so I, I just want to talk to you about about the, the dress code. But, you know, random people are not allowed to come up to you and say, you know, hey, don't wear shorts, buddy. Or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're not allowed to enforce it, and when that does happen, it, it 
it very much upsets the priest. Our our priest, I, I think, dress code violations don't make him mad. Um, people making themselves a self appointed dress code police, which I think has happened twice in the five years I've been there, mm-hmm. always managed to get a homily aimed at them and to you know mind their own business. So uh, that upsets the the priest when people do. Well, so sure, with those things in mind. Because go ahead, yeah. Because, uh, like you said, the priests and even the community at large wants more people to come to the mass, so they're just happier there, especially if it's your first time. So, you know, if you if you show up and you see something is kind of wrong with the way you're dressed, which again, you know, just by you being aware of it and you wanting to enter into this situation, I don't know if you have anything to worry about but it's just something that you can kind of adapt on your own so before before i started going to the mass i would go and i would just wear a polo and i would wear shorts to mass all the time right and i Mm -hmm. it it was just something that kind of that when i started going to the latin mass just kind of worked itself out to where i stopped doing that no one told me to stop doing that it's just kind of a thing that just kind of happened and now even if i don't go to the latin mass i still don't wear shorts obviously but it like you know it's just a, we're all adults we're all humans we can work things out and we can adapt to any situation hopefully so that yeah, yeah that's kind of what i have to say about that i another thing um a couple weeks ago father Paso here in Phoenix, who is an amazing priest, gives the most intense homilies I've ever heard in my life, and that's not an exaggeration or an embellishment. Uh, He did a homily about the dress code at Mass, and he basically just flatly stated in simple terms that uh, men and women get all excited and get all dressed up to get married, right? And to participate in that sacrament. Well, yeah, there's a whole uh, there's a whole sick or uh, reality genre of like say yes to the dress. Right. So if we we get all excited to participate in that sacrament, we come and look our best. Well, you know, there's this, the sacrament at the mass, and you know, there's a couple if you go to confession, right, or if there's a baptism. But uh, think of it that way. Now you don't have to wear a wedding dress or be in a tux if you're a guy every Sunday, but you want to, you know, you want to keep and kind of keep that in mind. You want to, I don't know, drop it down a level, whatever that means, you know? Yeah. In a way, this correlates with what we were talking about with like pageantry and government is basically like, yes, on the essential level, you're worshiping God, which is something done with the intellect and the will and not your clothing. But, um, you know, the, the senses, the externals are what guides and directs your internal um, state. And so, you know, you're going to go see somebody important. You're going to go be presented to uh, Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, mm-hmm. in, his, in his physical form. And if, if you're properly disposed, you're going to receive him in Holy Communion. And, and putting something on that reflects that um, will will help you develop, you know, a deeper devotion. So it's, you know, I don't like making everything about how, you know, there's a very specific reason for you personally that you should do this. I think some things are justified because 
um, it's the practice and it's, you know, it, it's part of the culture, but, right. um, there is a personal tie in that, you know, if, if you have something very special that you wear on Sundays, it will remind you almost like on a psychological level that you're doing something very special. And even if you go to mass every single day, every single time, it's very special. Sure. And it, it's along the lines of not to belabor the point, but one more, you know, one more point, uh, in the old Testament, the Jewish people are always asked to sacrifice their best, like their, their, the best grain or the best wheat or the best ox or the best calf. Right. So, and in, in the mass, the, the things that are used, the garments or the candles or the bowls and the cups, everything is supposed to be, you know, the, the best materials. They're not, they don't have plastic ciboriums on the altar. Right. So, Along those yes. lines, if you you want to make sure that you're presenting the best you can, so yeah, that's, that's right. But the the key is the vast majority of people aren't going to notice you mm-hmm. um, or or care what you're wearing or give second thought to it. So don't worry too much about it. Um, as far as specifics, there's the the joke is that in uh, in traditional Catholicism, modesty means no denim for men. Yes, denim for women, um, <laughs> which is funny and not necessarily true when you look at the parishes. But I've always laughed at that. But you know, for men, you know, wear wear pants. You know, that go all the way to your shoes. Um, I would recommend. I mean, basically, the basics are wear pants, and then you need to have. Um, basically, I mean, you you need to have a, a shirt with sleeves. So that's the the most specific thing is just to be you know essentially covered to the elbow and and the neck. Right. Right. Um, and you know, with that, I would say you don't see many men wearing jeans, especially on Sunday mass, but on uh, daily mass, people are wearing what they wear to work. And so you'll, you'll see jeans all over the place in, um, Latin mass parishes on weekdays. Yeah. And then, um, most of the time people will wear a collar. So you could wear a button up, a jacket, a tie, but you'll also just see people, you know, open collar or just in a golf shirt, um, and, and chinos and, um, you know, obviously closed toed shoes, but, and, you know, I'd recommend dress shoes, but again, you know, you'll see people in tennis shoes. It, it, Latin mass parishes are by and large, much more blue collar than your average parish. And so, you know, on work days, you'll see people in, you know, uniform really. So, right. um, you know, that's the general guideline basically is, is don't wear shorts and, you know, if you can, don't wear jeans and, and throw on a jacket if you've got one. But you'll see plenty of people in, you know, chinos and a, a short sleeve, you know, golf shirt. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about veiling. You want to talk about that? Well, I was going to say let, let's see the general guidelines for women too. Okay. Um, so obviously, there's an interesting kind of historical debate that took place uh, in and outside the church about women in pants. Right. So we're, we're not going to really go there. Almost no parishes have a rule against pants. Uh, I actually have never heard of a parish that doesn't allow it. But for women, basically, uh, with what you're wearing... So men need to be covered all the way to their shoes, basically no legs. For women, um, the guideline at our parish is that when you're seated, your knees are still covered with whatever you're wearing. Right. Be that. Okay. Pants, shorts, skirt, dress. And then that obviously you need to have sleeves and, you know, shoulders covered. Um, But, you know, not necessarily to the extent of where, you know, most men will be wearing long sleeves. I don't think you have to be that covered um and and that's pretty much the basic thing so you'll you'll see everything pants dresses skirts it's mainly just that when you're seated 
your knees are still covered and um your shoulders are covered okay all right that's good i like it veiling yeah veiling is a question that i have gotten and uh i would say do not veil if you're a man because men don't wear hats in christian spaces (laughs) or in christian men remove their hats during worship so um that one's pretty black and white right veiling is an ancient tradition there's a lot um there's a lot that's been said about it, especially in recent years that it's been discovered. What I would say is that um, anywhere that you're going to mass in any form, um, you it's absolutely your choice to wear a veil. Uh, at a Latin mass parish, most of the women will. And so a lot, a lot of times people feel comfortable choosing a veil in those circumstances. And there will be extra veils for you normally if you didn't bring one. And they're washed. At our parish, they don't like just throw them back in the bin. After, after the... Uh, the extras are used. They get thoroughly washed and and cleaned. Um, but again, it, it will always be your choice to veil. Right, you will so, not get kicked out if you don't. No, no. I mean, again, people just aren't worried about it. I, I think there's something about the veiling though that people just love it. So I, you know, I, I would recommend trying it because um, I, I don't. I just I've noticed that once people try it, they just love it, mm-hmm. and they um, it. it you know, I, I don't, I can't really speak from any authority on the veiling thing, but, um, again, nobody's going to shove a veil on you if you, if you don't want to wear one. Um, but if you do want to wear one, they will have a clean extra for you in most parishes. And, you know, it also is nice because it becomes an e- a go-to gift is that you can always buy somebody a, a nice veil. And so, uh, it, it opens up the possibilities for holidays and, and gift giving opportunities and you can have them blessed. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would say, uh, it, yeah, I've seen the people at the parish who weren't, once they start, they continue to do it, and they, they'll forget it every now and then, or they won't wear it, but it it's, uh, I don't know, I, I've always looked at it as a nice sign. It's kind of, it when you think about it, it actually can be turned into a pretty powerful symbol for the woman. Like, it's kind of a, it's not a, because the woman is lesser, it's more of an overall respect for who the women woman is, right? That they right. Uh, we should huh? we could tweet out like some homilies about it, and then some some really good uh, bloggers. I'm thinking of like it's like you'll find and some of them are like mommy bloggers, but then they point out about the veil thing, and they had these like profound um, theological significance of veiling that that are grounded in you know the real history of the church. Um, but as far as you know, going to your first mass, uh, you know, don't worry too much about veiling. But uh, you know, try it if you if you're open to it. What I would say too about the the clothing that men and women wear and the veils if they choose is that uh, it's a visual reminder that we're doing something a little bit weird. You know, we're we're literally <laughs> gathering together and we're gonna watch a man in a funny outfit. Uh, he's going to he's gonna lean down over a piece of bread mm-hmm. and say some words. And and when he does that the the bread is going to become a man uh, and that man is god right and that's super weird okay <laughs> yeah we need the visual reminders that what we're doing is weird and that's something i've always loved about the latin mass is that it's it's almost weird enough you know it it, it approaches the the level of weirdness that we we need to strive for um when we're trying to you know live in this gap between heaven and earth Okay, I like that as a way. I'd never, I'd never thought about it as that, but it, it makes sense. 
there's a lot of I mean there's a lot of pageantry in it so we have to expect that from ourselves on a certain level but okay so the next thing um so you walk in you're in your Sunday best you sit down we're going to go over parts of the missile next episode but the question we do get a lot is how do I should I pick up the missile how do I read through it uh what should I what should I do with it okay sure now so the first mass the first latin mass I ever went to with some friends one of my friends handed me the little red book and tried to guide me through it and what I realized is not only was I not able to necessarily follow the book I actually wasn't even paying attention to anything happening in the mass okay um so that is why I think if it's your first mass your first latin mass I think you should not worry about the missile and you should just be present and you should just follow along with the congregation right so when they stand you stand when they kneel you kneel just don't worry about trying to anticipate just be present uh, yes perfectly said yeah. um we there's this idea and it, it's actually not a it's actually a newer idea than people realize it it was a 20th century thing that um uh speaking in unison and all you know outwardly performing the same gestures and things uh creates and signifies uh, unity of intention um and that that's that's not necessarily how christians understood worship forever i mean the vast 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 majority of our ancestors worshiped in silence the, the congregation did not sing chant or speak anything during the mass uh, their participation was always interior and the idea that they had to be all saying the same thing at the same time and moving in lockstep um, is a very late development. So, sure. uh, you know, that's where people think, oh, I'm not participating because I'm not making the responses and I don't know if if Father is saying the introit or the collect or, or what. But realistically, you know, the key thing at Mass, you know, you know this if you've been to any Mass, it's going to start out, there's going to be some, you know, some prayers to introduce the, you know, to get started. There'll be scriptures Right. Um, here's the thing. If there's going to be a homily or a sermon, they'll turn around, they'll say the scriptures in English for everyone to hear them or, you know, whatever the vernacular is. And then the homily will be in the vernacular. Right. So, you know, the parts that may want to listen to the specific scriptures and the, the sermon are going to be in the, you know, main language spoken. So assuming, you know, you're in America, it'll be in English or Spanish. And then the next thing that's going to happen is uh, the consecration and the offering of of mass and the way that you participate is you unite yourself to our Lord on the cross. And that's where you place the focus of your attention. And if you're doing that and that's the main thing happening, then you are participating and you are, so you you can't, you can't equate participating with following along. Right. Because it's not the same thing. And I mean, just think about technology. I mean, if you look at the old churches um, in Europe, you'll notice that, they're massive. There wasn't sound equipment. And the vast majority of people couldn't see or hear, you know, the specifics of what the priest was doing. Mm-hmm. Most of them were illiterate. And a book like a missile would have cost, you know, five people's lifetime earnings. Yet all these people were, you know, effectively worshiping God and becoming saints by attending mass. Um, it was not in any way hampered by this. So 
I would just say, yeah, chill out. Well, and, um, <laughs> well to, yeah. I, I mean, not chill, but you know, don't, don't worry about the specifics. It, it's fascinating to learn about that stuff. And I'm, I'm very excited next episode to talk through all yeah. the specifics, but honestly, you trust me. If you attend any form of the mass regularly, you do know what's going on. Sure. And even though you're, you don't know what's being said exactly, you know what's going on. Well, I think, uh, yeah, two things to remember. Uh, one very bluntly I'll say is, uh, what's happening on the altar is not dependent on if we know exactly when to stand or when to sit or when to kneel. Right. Um, and two, use this uncertainty like I would say embrace the uncertainty, embrace the idea of being new at this, because if you're listening to this, uh, I don't, even if you're, even if you're younger, say you're 15, you've still been going to mass in theory for 15 years and you, you have been going at least for a decade since the age of reason. Right. So in us older folks, once you get into the habit of going to the mass so much, you basically become a mass robot so you know exactly what to do you know when to stand you know what's going on you say like and with your spirit very robotically uh to the point where you may think that you're participating but what are you actually getting out of it if you look at it in those terms so now you if you don't think you have any idea what's going on embrace that and embrace that adventure to the point where you can come at it free like openly again to where you're not a robot going through the motions like you do every Sunday. You know what I'm saying? I had never thought of it that way, but that is absolutely brilliant. Oh, um, thank you. It's almost like, I mean, but it's like when you see a, you know, when a child sees snow for the first time. Right. And they, I mean, they don't, they don't know that, okay, it's frozen water that's done this, this and that. I mean, they're just amazed by all this stuff. And I had never thought of it that way until you said that. Um, and so there, there'll be a point. Yeah. When you, you know, eventually you may know all the little parts of the mass. Sure. And there, I hadn't until literally till just now, I didn't realize you, you do have a certain nostalgia for when it was all new. And yeah, so you only get that once. Like it's only going to be new, you know, and totally foreign to you this one time. So I, yeah, I would say embrace it and totally brilliant point that I hadn't thought of. Matt. Well, it also, yeah, I mean, thank you. <laughs> it also takes all the pressure off of you if you don't if you enter into the building thinking the pressure is all on you to conform then you're gonna kind of freak out in a way or it may be you may not be willing to embrace it but if you enter and knowing that there is no pressure on you because you're new at this uh the the in theory the pressure is on all the people who you're watching to kind of pick up the cues when i when i first started going to the Latin mass when it was at St. Victor's in West Hollywood, I picked out a man in the crowd, in the congregation and I, whatever he did, I did. Okay. And his name, his name's Gerardo. He's now a great friend. Uh, but I remember he, he would sit near the front and I knew when that man stood that I would stand. And when he knelt, I would knell, kneel. When he knelt, I would kneel. And so that's what you do. You you can use use all the people that have gone there for months and years to kind of play off of, and they'll and they will appreciate that. I mean, even if you don't tell them, uh, I, I don't know how they can appreciate it if you don't tell them, but they will appreciate 
in in theory that they know what to do and that people are watching them to learn how to do it. Yes. And, you know, I mean, the, the Latin mass is, you know, probably less than 1% of all the masses being offered in the United sure. States. Um, people are excited that other people are taking, have this shared and, and somewhat niche interest. So, you know, if you're struggling to know what to do, uh, people, you know, it's not that they're enjoying that you're struggling, but they obviously, we don't build parishes hoping nobody comes to them. I know. Um, so so they, so they're about it. And the other thing, and the pastor at Modern Day said this to me when I first went. I mean, he sought us out and was like, you know, you guys, I've seen you guys here for a few weeks, but you look new. You know, do you have any questions? And one thing he said is, you know, your job is to get to Calvary, get to, you know, focus on uh, our Lord's sacrifice for us and on the Mass, however you need to. And as long as you're doing it, you're not doing it wrong. So there's there's no rule that says that you have to stand, sit, or kneel at these times. So when you notice that, you know, in general, everyone there stands at certain points, kneels at certain points, and then there's these quick genuflections that will totally throw you for a loop because you won't be expecting them, recognize that, um, one, those things change region to region. You know, we do them as, as a, as a, you know, as a church body, but there's not a rule that says that you like, you only, you, you know, you only scored a 95% on this mass because you, you didn't stand for the quick stand after the, uh, after the sermon. Right. So, you know, that awkward, any trad knows what I'm talking about when I talk about the quick stand after the, um, you know, is it after the creed in high mass? Uh, Anyway, yeah, no, there, there's a few of them. Yeah, now you're putting me on the spot, Zach. You're, you're killing. Sorry, well, this is at one point where you, you, you stand all the way up and then you sit right back down mm-hmm. after the father says, "Yeah, no, that and, uh, it's, it's, uh, so it's basically, if you, if they don't do, if they don't do a creed, that's where it can kind of, oh, okay, right? it can kind. So yeah, we'll get. <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah, there's just that one like point that I think is always funny and and people are confused. The main thing I would say is, you know, just follow along and assuming that you're not drawing attention to yourself by being, you know, silly. Outlandish. You're not right. I mean, there's no, there's no point system. Um, You you haven't, you haven't sinned uh, and you're not going to, nobody's going to be like, man, I was going to go up and introduce myself to them. But uh, did you see how long it took him to realize we were supposed to be standing? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, again, right. just, you know, they're just not, right. Not noticing. Okay. So, so we're into the church. We're into, we're sitting down. We're, you know, you're, we're in this mass for the very first time. Uh, we, should we discuss the ad orientum and the altar rail, things like of that nature? Um, yeah, like sacred space. So the you'll notice that the geography of the parish might be different from what you're used to. Um, the the priest in the traditional mass um, will be facing the tabernacle, facing the crucifix, and uh, assuming that the church is in a standard layout, effectively facing the same direction as all the people. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a practice that's also done by... Uh, airline pilots who are generally have their back to the passengers um, <laughs> and bus drivers as well. Right. Um, and, you know, oftentimes teachers who are leading their students somewhere. So it's a, uh, you know, very, uh, very loving 
posture of sorts. Um, but, you know, in the, the common practice, at least in America, in the new mass is for the priest to be turned around, um, facing the back of the church. And then, you know, as a result, also facing the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be a little bit shocking. The good news is, is that because he's talking to God, um, it, you don't have to hear him. So you'll see that. Um, what do you want to say about the altar rail? Uh, I think, so think I would like to talk about maybe more of some of the concerns that I've heard as far as the altar rail or the priest facing away from the people. The idea that it cuts the priest off from the congregation, okay? Now, we've all, I'm sure many people here that are listening have been to a church that has an altar rail, and I mean, there's you. You may not have, but I would say odds are most people have. So it's not. It's. I don't think it's necessarily a jarring thing. Um, I think it's just more of an interesting thing. But the idea that the the priest who is facing away from the people and is kind of behind this rail is actually cut off from his congregation. Okay. Um, the thing we need to remember is we are we're all there for the same reason right even the priest who is the the um in persona christi who's leading this mass leading the sacrifice is still there for the same reason you are his his role within the mass is different but it doesn't mean he's there for any other reason right so if everyone when the priest is facing away from you it's not that he's shunning you or it's not that he is you know uh, looking down at you per se it's because everybody is facing it's like you said with the airplane the reason the pilots are facing the pilots are facing the same way as the passengers is because they're all going in the same direction right so with the mass everything is going in everything is going in the same direction literally and also um, not literally as far as uh, we're all there for the same purpose. Uh, and if, right. And it's nice because, you know, Father won't see if you're late, but, you know, don't be late. <laughs> yeah. but, you so know. The, the altar rail, um, I think that has that has a little more to do, and this is more of a deep dive that we, we can do at some point, but, like, how the, the temple was set up way back when, how there basically were, like, well, certain places that only the high priest could go for the sacrifice that the congregation then could not go. So this is, it's more, yeah. it's more of, like you said, sacred space. It's more of the idea of, uh, you know, I, it, I don't know if it's controversial. I mean, basically but, it has to do with, I mean, as far as, you know, the proper place for things. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's a significance. If you're in kind of the assembly in the pews, there is, you know, a, a different behavior that you'd expect, you know, if you were just out walking around or, you know, at Burger King or something, right. you know, you're supposed to be quiet. Like we said, there's, you know, something of a dress code. There's certain behavior expected that's, you know, a, a bit stricter for the purpose of being sacred than outside. And then you take that another step when you go beyond the altar rail into the sanctuary. And so in the sanctuary, um, there's not just a dress code, but everybody in there has to wear a sort of goofy costume. Um, I mean, and I say goofy in the, in the best sense. And every motion that they make is dictated by these rubrics. I mean, even just, you know, the, the priest will place his hand 
you know, on his stomach, halfway between his sternum. And, you know, I mean, there's it, there's just no room for deviation um, because it's a sacred act. And so um, it, it's a relief that we have the altar rail so that we can, you know, if need be, have a bathroom break or, you know, if need be, um, you know, lean down and tie our shoe and, you know, ask, look to our person and say, I lost my page, can you, you know, but both spaces are sacred. And obviously, you know, the altar rail is, is like waist high. So it, it, if they wanted to separate the priest from the people, there's much better ways to do that. Yeah, absolutely. The altar rail just got 10 feet higher. <laughs> so good. Um, yeah, it shouldn't be looked at as any of that. I, I, okay, I don't want to, you know, besmirch the name of any priest, but if that's one of their concerns, then they might have to wonder if they're, if they are too excited to be part of the show or like the master of ceremonies. Right. So it's, it, you don't, there, there also are rules within the mass that the priest eyes can't come above the altar rail when he faces the, um, when he faces the congregation with the exception of of, of a few parts, but like you'll see that the priest always keeps his eyes low when he, when he spins around briefly. So, it, there are many there are like many uses for it and many things that go into it <laughs> yeah the the neat thing about that is um it more or less mutes the priest and that's by design so you don't there's almost nothing like when i go to mass at my parish we have four priests and i i never i have to consciously notice who's saying the mass in order to have any you know recollection of who it was because mm. we have four priests and there are four four very different men. Um, very fortunate to have them. They all have very different, just everything about them, but I, I can't tell them apart when they're, when it comes down to it, when they're saying mass, everything about what they're doing is, is focused. If they were supposed to be up there entertaining us, their personalities would show through. Sure. Um, no, they take turns giving the homily. So that, I mean, when they come out and give a sermon, that's when, you know, you'll, you'll know the differences because they each have different, you know, points of knowledge that they share and different focuses. Right. But, the ritual itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went to mass in, uh, I went to Latin mass in France last year and it wasn't until the sermon that I realized that the priests weren't, they, that it wasn't, there was no English. I mean, after Latin, they switched to France or French. And it wasn't until then that I realized, Oh wait, this is, you know, kind of different, but I, it was because it was the Latin mass. I just felt completely at home and comfortable with everything that was happening. Mm-hmm. There were some, there's some interesting local deviations to, the French rubrics, but then also these priests were Chilean. So Chilean priests in France, I'm from America. It was a bit, you know, interesting, the, the subtle differences, but I didn't realize it was any different than the mass I had at home right. uh, until the sermon when he was speaking French. So, um, you know, I, I think that, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that those concerns are somewhat overblown about the fact that, that you know, there's a, a three foot piece of wood, you know, it also helps when you go to communion because you can kneel at it and pray. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, the priest faces a different direction or isn't looking at you. Um, you know, I mean, it, I think that we're, we're kind of taught to see those things as, as somehow, uh, you know, othering or something. Well, they, you know? they're, they are a product of being nervous or being scared about something that's foreign, right? So it's, if you are entering a situation that you're unsure of, you're more likely to look at things that are a little different and maybe pick them apart right so it it's not none, none nothing is meant to be threatening or scary 
within the mass. And right. it, they're, they're much more grandiose things than an altar rail within the mass. So it's like, it, you know, the, all the incense and all the things that go into that. Those are, if you were to look at something as intimidating, which you shouldn't, um, there's, there's probably other things that are more, much more intimidating. Sure. The other thing is that it's as a Protestant, a former Protestant, obviously, I would say that there's a there's a teaching point here. Um, you know, the church's power structure is different than what we're used to as Americans. It's it's essentially a top down organization with the pope, you know, operating as basically a, a monarch. Right. And and then you have the bishops who are over the diocese and then the priest or the pastor who's over the parish. And so, you know, in a small way, the pastor's kind of like the, the king of the parish or the, you know, the, the governor of the village or something, right? Mm. In, in Protestantism, we didn't have that. And the, the way that the worship was structured is that, you know, the, the pastor had his, his or her role to, you know, maybe give a sermon or, or give a special prayer. But, you know, for the most part, things were run by the worship coordinators and the you know, the communities themselves, the parishes, if you will, were run by committees. And, you know, it was in kind of a, a more, I would say, I don't know if you'd say democratic or just bureaucratic manner. Sure. Um, you know, in a Catholic parish, ultimately the priest has, or the pastor has all the um, authority and he may, you know, take advice from a committee or, or delegate that authority to the, the assistant priests, but ultimately he has that. And, the way that we worship reflects that. So it, you know, the role that the priest has in, in leading the people uh, is spelled out in the liturgy, which is why, you know, the priest is, has to do so much. And so, but also, you know, he also has to follow a very strict code while he does it. And that's, you know, it's a, uh, it's almost like a paradox in a sense that it's, it is very focused on, not focused on, but, you know, the priest obviously is prominent. You know, he processes down the altar. He's right there front and center. You know, he takes communion first, et cetera, et cetera. But everything that he's doing uh, is is from the missile, and he has to be obedient to the higher authority uh, in that role. Sure. Um, in, a, in a Protestant setting, like I grew up in, it was different. You know, the, the pastor or whoever they got to kind of decide how they wanted to do this. And a lot of times they would minimize their own, you know, role. They didn't, you know, they didn't want to be the, the complete center of attention, but, you know, just by the fact that they had so much uh, influence they could exert over how the service went in a sense, they had a much bigger role than even the, the traditional priests, you know, even, you know, even if you were talking about, you know, Cardinal Burke processing down the aisle in a Capamania, um, the long flowing capes again, Mm -hmm. like, he's putting less of himself into that ritual than, than you realize. And so, um, well, he's also very comfortable. theological. Well, yeah, we love him. Comf. Um, (laughs) he's great. The, uh, um, the, so, I mean, you have to kind of see the mystery in that, that yes, people say that in Latin mass, the priest is, is sort of, you know, almost exalted or, you know, too, whatever, but then realize the priest has almost no say in, in any of it. I mean, even just his body postures and even the way he holds his hands, and we'll get more into that next time, is is governed by by the rubrics. And even when there was a diversity of rubrics before the Council of Trent, 
they were still really strict at the priest level. You just had more national variations that got all kind of smoothed out and synced up with the Council of Trent. Um, it's really just never been a situation that the individual parish priest um, exerts, you know, significant influence over how the congregation worships. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that there's the faith, the Latin mass is a catechism of its own and it, it teaches a lot of things that it doesn't actually say. And one of them is the proper role of the priest in the parish. Um, It's sort of spelled out by that. Um, And so the liturgy supports kind of the healthy operations and, and sort of governing, if you will, of the parish um, and then you can see that because of the different understanding and how church authority works in Protestantism, by necessity, there's a different way of worshiping that that also displays, you know, that understanding of, of church leadership. So, man, brilliant. Uh, a lesson in a lesson in a lesson. <laughs> um, receiving communion. So if you, um, assuming that you're disposed, you're, you know, a Catholic in the state of grace, you know, et cetera, et cetera, um, you should receive communion the you know we'll get more specific but basically you just go forward you kneel down at the altar rail and when the priest approaches you you just um you know rest your tongue on your bottom lip make sure you you stick it out far enough and the the priest will give you a a private benediction with the host and then place it on your tongue um in the new mass i know that i see i i only see the new mass a couple times a year so i get this wrong every time but you you say amen and then the priest places the host on your tongue. Correct. Um, so the way that you say amen and signify your assent to what the blessing that you're getting into communion is simply by um, allowing the priest to place the host on your tongue. So um, yes, you're not, and the priest says amen on your behalf. So if you know, that's how you say amen is open your mouth and receive the host. Um, and there will never be the precious blood distributed unless, um, unless somebody has like a, um, an allergy that they cannot consume gluten, right. uh, then they can speak to the pastor and they'll they'll make an arrangement for you to receive the precious blood. But remember, um, you know, defined in our faith is that in both forms, so in uh, in our in the host and the precious blood, uh, you have the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. So you know, either drinking what appears to be bread or eating what appears to be bread or drinking what appears to be wine. Um, you receive the whole Christ because he's alive. Um, blood being separated from the body uh, is a, is something that happens in death. So, um, you know, coming from Protestantism, you just, you know, the once a month we did communion, you just would receive both. And I know that in America, um, a lot of diocesan parishes do offer the precious blood for the most part. That's not common outside of America. Um, in general, because it can create confusion about what you're receiving. And also, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it can get spilled. Right. I mean, there, there's all sorts of things that can happen with the precious blood that can't happen with a host. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. They'll, you know, don't be too alarmed. I know plenty of parishes do this if they're not Latin mass, but they'll be the priest distributing communion. Um, in the Latin mass, the priest, uh, the, uh, the priest gives everybody communion. So he, um, I know in some parishes he'll kind of just give like a certain number of volunteers and the volunteers give everyone else communion, but the priest actually personally gives communion to every single person that receives. Um, or, you know, sometimes a- another priest will step in just for communion. So they have two going, right. you'll see quickly the altar rails make it a lot faster than the lines that you see in parishes that do standing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very efficient, but 
Oh yeah, and then there'll, there'll be a um, an, an altar boy with a, a patent, basically a gold. Um, honestly, it looks like a, a you know tiny gold pizza, you know pizza pan thing, mm-hmm. and uh, they place that you know under the priest's hand as he's putting the host in your mouth because you'd be surprised that sometimes it gets dropped, and um, you know it's nice to know that if our Lord's precious body. Um, you know, the second person of the Holy Trinity, if that gets dropped, it's going to land on a solid gold, um, you know, Patton. plate. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And sometimes, uh, the joke I've heard from altar boys is that if you don't stick your tongue out far enough to catch it, they'll just lightly nudge you with the patent in the, in your, uh, throat and your tongue will pop out. I've never had that happen, but, uh, you know, they're <laughs> looking out for you. So good. Um, and then also close your eyes. I, I know this is weird, but if, if you're not used to receiving communion and you think it's weird to um, open your mouth and have somebody place a, a host on your tongue. One way to make it a million times less awkward is to close your eyes. Right. All right. How about a, a quick word on confessions too? Sure. So um, I personally ended up at the Latin mass because I was looking for confession and the parish just had all sorts of confession times. And I thought, well, here, here's where, you know, I guess this is where the diocese hides all the sinners. Um, uh, confession is the exact same sacrament in any Catholic church that you go to, but just some quick notes. There may be confessions generally before, sometimes during, and almost always after mass. Um, so, you know, hop in line, go to confession. You just like normal, you'll say, you know, uh, bless me father for I have sinned. It's been, you know, X number of days since my last confession. Um, a good tip is to say your age and state in life, you know, because if you're a nun, that's important. Um, and then you get to confess in English and the priest is going to give you advice in English and then he's going to give you absolution in Latin. Um, so don't, you don't have to Google like, okay, what's the Latin word for, for gossiping? I need to be forgiven for this. (laughs) Um, there, they do not do face to face confessions in any Latin mass parish I've seen, which I find face to face confession like, horrifying so i'm i'm thankful for that um but if you're not used to being behind a screen you will be and um a, a difference that i've noticed and matt you can speak on this is that you know the priests are keenly aware that when it comes down to it the confession is what makes you a saint uh if you've sinned it all after baptism right and so they're they're very dialed in to the mission that they have to make sure that you become a saint. Mm -hmm. So what was different for me was that they asked questions and, you know, really wanted to, to help me understand what was happening. And then they offered, you know, pretty specific advice. And this can be jarring at first, um, if you're not expecting it. So I just kind of wanted to warn people that it's amazing, but, you know, if you're caught off guard, um, you know, realize that like, you know, imagine if you went to the doctor and you told him all your symptoms and he's like, okay, thank you for telling me this. Um, let me give you a prescription and a bill. See ya. (laughs) In this case, our, you know, our physician, our spiritual physician, you know, they want to know what's going on and they want to help you heal from Mm -hmm. it. And and that's going to require some back and forth, but you know, a lot of sins are uncomfortable. So, you know, just be ready to uh, to talk to them. You know, I've had priests give me books in confession, mm-hmm. um, pamphlets. You know, here's a rosary. You know, let's let's make sure you're praying this. Um, 
it's amazing, but it, it it is kind of different than than other parishes. So I just wanted to warn. Is that kind of in your same experience? Yeah. No. I I it's not really intimidating at all. It, I prefer if they shoot me straight, and um, they'll if you you can ask them questions, they'll walk you through it. It's it's all they're like you said. They're there to help you make it to heaven. So they're not going to scoff if you don't obviously don't confess the sins of your, of someone that's not you. Right. They, and make sure you don't kind of like, don't try not to couch your sins with other things. But if you have questions, like you can ask them, is this mortally sinful? And they'll walk you through it and they'll do things like that. So, you know, and it's a, right. Cause like so many of the saints recommend bringing your venial sins to confession. But what I love is that, you know, at you know our priest if you when you do that he reminds you you know you do know that this is venial and of course you would still go to communion um as long as you were sorry for this you wouldn't have to come here first right um they're also on guard for things like scrupulosity you know if if you're confessing things that signify that there's some kind of you know problem with how you're processing you know guilt um the the priests are there to make to help you make a a good confession and to help you become a saint and so you uh, you really benefit from that. And the possibly the most, I don't know if I want to say intense, but one of the most, like, this was a priest that when you went to confession with him, like, you knew that you were going to, he was going to speak it to you straight. Um, his quip was always, though, uh, you know, come to confession, I'm offering a deal. If I've never heard the sin before, I'll do the penance for you. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was a, a challenge that he, he's like, bring me bring me the, the most shocking things. And, you don't realize for a priest, I, I can't speak from experience, but, you know, if you, you know, priests have this ability with the sacrament to, you know, again, restore you to grace and, you know, offer you absolution on behalf of God. Um, you know, don't go out and commit terrible sins, but if you bring something really shocking to a priest, realize that that day, you know, they may think, you know, I, I forgave a murderer today. You know, I mean, think about how profound that must be for the priest. So uh, hopefully you haven't murdered anybody if you're listening to us. But if you have, know that, you know, there's priests all over the world that would, I mean, they would just love to hear your confession and, and to give you absolution for that. Because, you know, they probably hear a lot of the same kind of boring stuff over and over again. So, sure. you know, go to confession while you're there. But again, you know, be prepared to have a conversation where they'll speak it to you straight and help you become a saint. Um, and, you know, that can just be... I most of my friends have come out and had some comment about how I wasn't expecting that, but I loved it. So yep. be ready. All right. We're getting kind of long, but I wanted to wrap this up with a quick saint of the week because I, I wrote out, I wrote all this stuff out for her. So I want to give her her due. Let's hear it. St. Agatha. The feast day is February 5th. She's the patron saint of volcanic eruptions breast cancer, nurses, Sicily, fire, jewelers, natural disasters, and bakers. So I think oh, so bakers. I she's my family patron saint. She's martyred, Love it. martyred at the age of 20. She's one of seven women in the canon of the mass. Born to a rich noble family, Agatha made a vow of virginity and spurned all her suitors. And like many virgin martyrs, one of those spurned men turned her into the authorities where she was put on trial. She did not give in to appeals to turn on God. She was thrown in jail for a month where she was assaulted multiple times. After the month, 
she held strong again and then was put back in prison. She was tortured, stretched on a rack to be torn with iron hooks, burned, whipped, and given a mastectomy uh, against her will. She was set to be burnt at the stake, but she was saved by an earthquake. Uh, when she was placed back in prison, she was visited uh, by St. Peter. St. Peter appeared to her and healed her of all her wounds, and she eventually died in prison. She, uh, let's see here, the, her, she has a cathedral in Sicily dedicated to her, and many, celebra- many cultures have celebrations for her that are over the span of multiple days, usually February 3rd to February 5th, where there is uh, lots of singing about her life and large community dinners where the host of that day or the host of that, you know, of that little production, the singing will feed everybody, and they all have a great time. She died in the year 251 in Sicily. So St. Agatha is the saint of the week. Man, the uh, you realize how, um, I don't know, how much of a, a wimp you are when you read about the, especially the women martyrs in the church and, and the stuff that they, you know, conquered in Christ's name. You, uh, you, you definitely feel like a wimp at that point. All right. Well, that's part one. We'll be back with part two. Absolutely. Become our patron. We can't, uh, we can't wait to start putting out Patreon-exclusive content, and we know that you'll love it, so sign up for that. Patreon.com slash Roman Circus Pod. Thank you for listening, and we will see you all next week. See you later. See you later.